the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. Yes, indeed, and a good morning to you. We get started now at eight minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on a Tuesday. It's the 13th, 13th morning of the ninth month of the year of our Lord, 2022. Thank you so much for joining us. We've got a very good show for you today. Coming up in an hour, at the top of hour number two, it is Kersenau Day. That's a beautiful thing about Tuesday. I know a lot of people tune in on Tuesdays specifically for Peter Kersenau, so you are in for a treat today. Uh, he's loaded up and ready to go. He's been writing more and more articles. He finds time on all of his jet setting because he's traveling the country for various work purposes, uh, negotiations and, and such. And uh, while he's on these planes, he said he just, you know, you know the old saying, right? Uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Peter puts his hands to work, and he just starts banging out columns for National Review Online. Uh, National Review Online is his, uh, his uh, venting place, I guess. But he's got a couple of new ones out, and we're going to talk to him about it. The uh, paying for wokeness is the first one. And that is, um, it's a great piece, as you can imagine. We have to make uh, institutions that have made wokeness their core, we have to make them pay for it, particularly when they victimize other people. He's speaking specifically of Oberlin College and the People's Republic thereof. 
um, and what they did to Gibson's. We know that story has finally, after six years, reached its conclusion. We were there from the beginning of it, um, and we're so happy to see the end of it. It's a shame that it took six years. And also allegations, more Jussie Smolletting, this time in college sports, um, with Duke University and Brigham Young University. Allegations of players, volleyball players, being called racial slurs during games. It's another Jussie Smollett situation. Pete wrote about that, too. So we're going to cover all of those things with Kirsten now coming up at 1010. At 11.10, at the top of hour number three, Jessica Franz is going to join us. She is a member of the um, Republican Party's State Central Committee, and she has a substack uh, piece of work that is just wonderful. It is so in-depth. You know, we covered last week um, the steps toward getting rid of the corrupt leadership of the ORP, specifically headed by Bob Paduchik, um, who is just a, a walking disaster of a, of a, of a leader. Uh, and as a matter of fact, given the way he treats other people, I would call him a walking disaster of a human being. Uh, not to mention the fact that he's a coward, full-on no stuttering, no ambiguity. He's a coward because he will not do interviews with media that will not kiss his ring. Uh, that's the reality. We tried to get Bob Paduchik on for months on this program to talk about everything that was going on in the primaries leading up to their ridiculous endorsement of Mike DeWine. They're funding a Mike DeWine's campaign without even having endorsed him. Uh, 300000 missing dollars, all kinds of nonsense that Bob Paduchik has been specifically responsible for at the uh, head of the uh, Ohio Republican Party. And so we've been covering the, you know, finally the reformers got enough votes in the August part, uh, primary part two, got enough votes, got enough people who have pledged to get rid of Paducic and change the leadership and change the culture of corruption in the ORP to make it something strong. And um, Bob Paducic managed on Friday to use a back, I don't even know how to describe the ridiculous procedure that he used uh, to shift and push his execution date until January. So he got a delay uh, or a stay of execution, if you will. They did not hold the vote at Friday's meeting, and they cannot hold it now until January. So that gives him three and a half months to try to flip five or six or seven um, state central committee members who are going to vote to get rid of him to try to keep his position there. I hope they stand fast. I hope they stand strong. Anyway, Jessica Franz, sorry, I got off on a tangent. Jessica Franz is a part of that. She uh, wrote a ter- terrific uh, series of, of uh, articles and information on her Substack, and you can read that, if you so desire, on my webpage. It is loaded up there, as well as Peter Kirstenau's columns right now at alwayswrite.us, alwayswrite.us. We'll interview Pete at 1010. We'll interview Jessica Franz about the state of the Ohio Republican Party and the State Central Committee and the mess that it is at 1110 this morning. So those are our first two guests. That makes our number one wide open, wide open for my uh, uh, presentation and for your phone calls at 216-901-0945, We will get you up and on the radio with either one of those. Before we get started on the news of the day, what do you say we stand up, patriots? Stand up and face a flag nearby if you have one. If you don't, don't worry about it. Close your eyes. Imagine one. Put your hand on your heart and join us for our pledge of allegiance to this great republic. If you are a believer in sanctuary cities until it comes time to prevent to provide sanctuary 
because <laughs> that's going to be the theme of the monologue here, well, then you don't have any idea what this uh, flag represents anyway. You are therefore exempted from the request to stand and pledge your allegiance to it. Instead, you may feel free to take a knee next to your favorite ex-quarterback, your favorite ex-soccer player with the pink hair, and your favorite ex-WNBA player. wonder how she's doing for her new Russian team. Anyway, for the rest of us... I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I legitimately don't know. I wonder how she's doing. I haven't heard her name in a few weeks. People stopped talking about Brittany Griner. She didn't get released, did she, and me not know it? I think she's still there. Yeah. Uh, it's just everybody stopped talking about her. How about that? Imagine, imagine that, Brit. You hate on America. You refuse to stand for the anthem. You declare that the anthem shouldn't be played before your games. You go to play in Russia because apparently you're making $200,000 in America is not enough. you got to go, quote, supplement your income by playing in European leagues and in Russia. You go there and get your, you get your vape on. You get your uh, weed vape on. You get busted by a uh, drug-sniffing dog in the airport. You go through the trials. You cry and say, I want to come home to that country that oppressed me so much before. Uh, you, you get a nine-year prison sentence, and now you're still begging uh, Biden to, to try to save you. First of all, Trump would have saved you by now. Uh, so I hope you understand that. Legitimately, legitimately, seriously, you would have been saved by now because Trump knows how to maneuver with those people. Uh, Biden doesn't. Uh, number one. And number two. I'm just wondering how your season's going. She's got a new nine-year contract there, the nine-year uh, contract uh, as enforced by the Russian courts, uh, saying you're not getting out of here unless there is some serious, serious bartering or trade going on with the United States. So anyway, that's the Brittany Griner part of the story. Let's get to the monologue. What am I talking about with sanctuaries? Mayor Muriel Bowser, and by the way, one, one week from now, I'll be headed to D.C., um, on Tuesday next week, I'll be headed to D.C. in the afternoon because Wednesday morning we'll be broadcasting live from Washington, D.C. in the shadow of the Capitol. And I'll be doing my show from the FAIR uh, event, the Federation for American Immigration Reform. I've done this twice before. We didn't do it last year because it was a shell of itself because of the COVID uh, aftermath. Uh, the year before that was 2020, and they didn't do it because of the COVID situation. But 2019, 2018, we did it, and we're doing it again now. Uh, I'll be broadcasting live, and I'll be talking to the most important people when it comes to immigration in this country, with the exception maybe of Alejandro Mayorkas, who would never dare show his face at that event. He, of course, is the director or secretary of Homeland Security. But who we will talk to are directors of border security. We will talk to ICE uh, directors. We will talk to some of the most prominent people in Washington, D.C. when it comes to illegal immigration and the crisis that we have at our border right now. And it is indeed a crisis. Uh, unlike what um, Kamala Harris said to Chuck Todd on Meet the Press on Sunday, two days ago, the border is not secure. We're on pace for two million crossings this year alone. We're at, if you count Godaways, over four and a half million have crossed since Biden took office a year and a half ago. That's the reality of it. So where are all these people going once they come into the country uh, walking on Biden's red carpet? 
They come to the country. They use the magic words. I claim asylum. Oh, you claim asylum. What are you? Uh, what are you claiming asylum from? Um, persecute. Persecute what? What does that mean? You're being persecuted by whom and for what? Uh, I don't know. Okay, great, super. Go get in. Go get in line over there, and uh, we'll call you in two years to have you come back and have a an asylum hearing, along with the millions of others that we are allowing in. It is a joke. There is no security at our southern border at all. It is leading to extraordinary amounts of rising crime. It's leading to extraordinary amounts uh, uh, amounts of uh, rising drug trafficking, human trafficking, gang members, and worse. So this massive crush of humanity that continues to come across that southern border apparently must stay in the border states. Let them absorb two million illegal aliens crossing that border and giving phony asylum claims. Let them absorb them. Let them uh, 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 provide housing for them, provide health care for them, provide food for them. Let the border states deal with it is the mantra of the big city, East Coast, particularly East Coast, but not exclusively liberals. And that's why Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, to me, should be the man of the year for saying, we need to let them know what it feels like. We need to let them know what it feels like to be a border state and give them a tiny fraction of a taste of what we are dealing with down here that they don't care about. And they won't care about until they come to their doorstep. So Greg Abbott, as you know, has been sending busloads of illegals. Uh, at their own, they have to volunteer, by the way. They have to sign a waiver saying, yes, we want to go to D.C., we want to go to New York City, we want to go to Chicago or whatever. Nobody's being forced at the tip of a spear to get on a bus. But they're being given an option. So Abbott is sending these busloads to D.C. And, uh, and to New York and to Chicago. And the leftist leaders there who brag about their sanctuary city status now live in. What are you doing giving us these people and expecting us to provide sanctuary for them? Are you kidding me? You keep them down there on the border where they belong. You keep them down there in your states. You provide for them. And I'm not mistaking that. I'm not misstating that either. In an email to Washington, D.C. residents over the weekend, the mayor of D.C., Muriel Bowser, explained her new plan on how to deal with the influx of illegal immigrants over the last six months. She is calling it a humanitarian crisis. How about that? It's a crisis because they're in D.C. It's not a crisis when they're down there in Texas. Quote, we believe that approximately 9,400 people have been bused to D.C. from Texas and Arizona since uh, uh, since April. The vast majority of people move on to final destinations outside of D.C. To better re- respond to this ongoing humanitarian crisis, yesterday I announced that we are establishing an Office of Migrant Services. Through the office, the district will be able to set up a framework, meet all buses, and facilitate onward travel. In other words, don't let them off the bus here. Get them out. Meet all the buses and facilitate onward travel. Go somewhere else. You know, if I didn't know any better, I might think that that's a racist position to take because most of the migrants are brown and black people from various parts of the world. Most people would consider that xenophobic. Why are you trying to push them out of your city and into somebody else's backyard? You know that if this was President Trump doing this, you know that if this was some sort of uh, a white male, a white Republican male mayor saying, meet the buses when they get here and move them on. Don't let them off the bus here. We don't want them here. And if we do have to take care of their basic needs while they're here, let's get them back on the buses and move them on uh, as soon as humanly possible. You know what they would call that, racism 
xenophobia. Triaged the needs of people, she wrote, arriving in Washington, D.C., attended their basic needs and set up a system distinct from the homeless services program that is tailored to the needs of the migrants. She chided Governors Doug Ducey and Greg Abbott for shipping illegal alien, uh, aliens from border towns. Quote, with this plan, we are staying true to our D.C. values. <laughs> what are your D.C. values? Talk a big game about providing sanctuary for people until you actually have to provide said sanctuary? Must be. Bowser announced the move, despite the nation's capital being a leftist sanctuary city, while acknowledging legal illegal immigration places severe burdens on taxpayer-funded systems meant for American system uh, citizens. Quote, this framework also acknowledges that the district's homeless services system is not set up to support the unique needs of migrants. With the new Office of Migrant Services, we can ensure our homeless services system continues to function in support of D.C. residents. This is a new challenge for D.C., but I feel confident if we lead with our values, which means move the migrants out of here, and we put the right systems in place, then we will lead with a response that makes our community proud. So I just, that is phenomenal. That is wonderful. That is outstanding to listen to leftist mayors who claim and talk a big game about how we need to be compassionate. Allow these people who are are fleeing the persecution of economic hardship in other countries to come to the United States. Create a pathway to citizenship. Give them all citizenship. Welcome them all. But not in my backyard. Don't bring them here I want somebody else to be compassionate to them. I want somebody else to deal with the extraordinary costs of bringing them in. I want somebody else to provide the sanctuary that I so proudly claim. Don't bring them to me. That has been the me- the message from the mayor of New York or of uh, Washington D.C., Muriel Bowser, and yes, from the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot. I'll give you that half of the story. Right after this. Okay, 926. Let's go to Chicago now to finish, or not finish, but continue the story. And again, I'm going to be all over this next week. I'll be broadcasting live from D.C. in the shadow of the Capitol on Wednesday and Thursday next week. And we're going to bring you the most comprehensive coverage of illegal immigration and the problem it's causing for uh, uh, people nationwide. Uh, next week. So I'm looking forward to that, and I hope you make a make a point of tuning in for those programs. Let's go to Chicago now, and let's look at um, uh, uh, Beetlejuice, uh, otherwise known as Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Chicago's mayor is livid. She has been blasting Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, calling him a non-Christian, calling him immoral, calling him a racist, calling him a xenophobe, for wanting to move some of the millions of illegal aliens claiming phony amnesty who are coming into Texas, onto other parts of the country, including her big sanctuary city of Chicago. How dare he want to bring those people to Chicago? Doesn't he know that our sanctuary ends at the word, not at providing actions? He needs to keep those people down there. So this is what she's been doing. It, and, and claiming that Greg Abbott, by the way, uh, uh, broke the rules by not telling us that these people were even coming. How can we prepare for their arrival? Well, lo and behold, Lori Lightfoot, because she's a Democrat, um, is just letting her hypocrisy soar. Um, she's doing the same thing to Chicago suburbs. Abbott and Ducey are sending the illegals into Chicago. Lori Lightfoot saying, not in my backyard, sends them out of Chicago to Chicago suburbs. 
And one mayor of a suburb called Blue uh, Burr Ridge is tired of that nonsense. Listen. Pritzker has made it clear that Illinois is in a welcoming state and xenophobia has no home here. Uh, is he talking about you complaining? I, I, he must be, and I, I take great offense from that. This has nothing, again, to do with xenophobia. Uh, we are a very diverse community, if anybody knows anything about Burr Ridge. Uh, you know, it's not about the migrants. It, it's about the very thing that Lori Lightfoot complained about and not giving us a heads up so we could be prepared, so we can tell our residents. Obviously, they had many, many questions about safety, about health concerns, about unaccompanied minors. Uh, and so it, it's just the arrogance of the state uh, just presuming they can do uh, what they want. They invite people to come to the this state, and then they just willy-nilly put them in the suburbs without even giving us the courtesy of letting us know. And meanwhile, J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois, along with Beetlejuice Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, the two of them, again, letting their hypocrisy just, just flow, claiming that it's xenophobic for Gary Grasso, the mayor of Burr Ridge, to complain about the migrants being moved from Chicago to Burr Ridge, calling that xenophobic when they themselves are complaining about the migrants being moved from Texas and Arizona into Chicago. It's, it's like every leftist, every leftist says, give to the poor, help the poor, help the needy. They're the ones who walk right by every uh, 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 individual who is in need. They walk by the, food, uh, the soup kitchens. They walk by uh, the Goodwill stores donating nothing. Somebody else has to do the good works here, but we're going to call for it. We're going to be the leaders saying, hey, everybody help these people out. But when it comes time to dip it into their own pockets, no, forget about it. They're going to scream, we need to be more compassionate to poor people around the world who want to come to the United States. Quit calling them illegal aliens. Call them undocumented migrants, undocumented workers, and then give them a pathway to citizenship. As long as they don't move into my backyard. That's the Democrat way. Hypocrisy flows from their pores. The sun comes out, they sweat lies and hypocrisy while while virtue signaling and telling you what supporters of sanctuary cities they are. It's impossible to comprehend. We got more coming up after the news. AM 1420 the answer. Pursuit of happiness. Always right radio with Bob France on the answer. Okay, 938. Appreciate you being with us uh, this morning. Uh, we're open for phone calls at 216 901 0945 and 888 281 1110. I do have some very important stories to get to this half hour, too. But Sally and Bria is waiting, so let's make her wait no longer. Sally, good morning. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, regarding the uh, border issue and the outrageous response from our vice president, we need to um, take a stand. Even though we don't have power as a Republican majority, we just need to say we are not going to fund the vote to fund anything else until you start rebuilding the border wall, giving us actual borders and a nation with sovereignty, 
and we need to um, increase the amount of money for border agents and reinstitute policies to return people uh, outside of the United States so that it discourages them from coming in the well, they, first they, place. Sally, they have said those things. They have said those things. By and large, an overwhelming majority of the Republicans in Congress have said those things. But you, as you pointed out at the beginning of your comment, um, they don't have the majority. They don't have enough. Uh, and all it takes is a small handful. In fact, all it takes is one on the Senate side of uh, Republicans to be a rhino and to go along with the Democrats and uh, and to allow them to continue to operate as they have with an open border. So, But they've said it. There are many of them who are screaming it from the rooftops that we have to secure the border. We have to uh, uh, you know, turn people away. We cannot just accept. Uh, re- reinstitute. President Trump's remain in Mexico policy. If they want to claim asylum, fine. Fine, you claim asylum in the first country you get to that is not your own, that you are supposedly being persecuted in, and you stay there. If you want to come to another country, you wait in Mexico while you establish an asylum claim that would justify you coming to the United States. All these tools are there. The border tool, border wall tool that you're talking about, all these tools are there, but there just aren't enough Republicans to to make those things happen. In the meantime, I support Governor Abbott in his uh, transporting people because that makes a statement. Yes, it does. Well, you know what it does. It, 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 and, and the one thing, the one complaint I have, because from what I saw yesterday, they're about to add a fourth big blue Democrat-run sanctuary city to run these buses to, and that's Philadelphia. You remember uh, Mayor Jim Kenney of Philadelphia a couple of years ago dancing on video when he came out of his office and said, we're a sanctuary city, and dancing like an absolute goof? Um, they're going to start sending them there as well. And I'm fine with that. But what I want them to do is bring it to the doorstep of of Joe Biden. And I don't mean in D.C. because he only spends half of his time in D.C. He spends the other half of his time at his beach house in, in Delaware. So I want Greg Abbott, Doug Ducey, the governors of Texas and Arizona respectively, to start sending busloads of migrants to Delaware. Put them on the beach. Literally, let them go to Joe Biden's doorstep and let him deal with this and see, show him what all of these other small communities and border uh, uh, states and border towns down along our southern border have to deal with on a daily basis. Let him see it when he goes back to Delaware, which he does literally half of the time he's been in office, and uh, and have his wonderful beach time ruined by a bunch of people who are uh, you know needy in need, in need of shelter in need of. Uh, food in need of medical care, in need of schools, et cetera, et cetera. Let him deal with it on a first-hand basis. That's what I want to see. I agree, and Nancy Pelosi's doorstep, too. Yeah, that would be sending them to San Francisco. But you know what the difference is? First of all, Pelosi doesn't spend much time there, like like uh, Biden does. Biden is in Delaware literally every weekend. Uh, but the other thing is, Pelosi wouldn't even notice it. Because San Francisco doesn't need all of the migrants to create that sort of uh, uh, that sort of scene in San Francisco. They already have them with San Francisco residents. Uh, I don't know if you've seen any videos or pictures lately, but San Francisco streets are lined with tents. Uh, they are filthy with human waste and with drug needles and 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 just uh, I mean the, the the worst filth that you can imagine. San Francisco has gone from the beautiful city by the bay. Uh, to to an absolute hellhole. It's an armpit. It's a dumpster. And Nancy Pelosi, if they were to add the migrants into it too, they would just mix in with the rest of the impoverished crowd there. And Nancy Pelosi would never even notice the difference. 
it, it would still give them some publicity. Yeah, we well, you know, if they send them to any big blue city, that that that's good publicity. Send them to any big blue city. Send them to Portland. Send them to Seattle. Send them to, uh, you know, to uh, uh, St. Louis. Send them wherever you have to. Send them to Baltimore. You know, so many of these cities that claim sanctuary status for illegal aliens, uh, let's let them prove it. Let, let's start seeing what kind of sanctuary you can provi- provide these people that are coming over by literally, you know, going to have two million by the end of this this year. So just tell so, them you asked for it. You've got right. it now. That's right. That is exactly what Abbott is doing. That's exactly what Abbott is doing. He's telling me you're a Bowser. You and, and, and Lifeboat and all these others, be compassionate and let these people in. Well, you asked for us to let them in. They're in. Now they're coming to your city. Well, we didn't say that. Keep them in Texas. See, that's the crap. That That's the leftist way. And thanks for the call, Sally. That's what they do. You know, it, it goes back to the old um, you know, definition or description of, of socialism. It's a fine idea until you run out of other people's money when i don't have somebody else's money to spend socialist does socialism does socialism doesn't look so good it doesn't work so well it's the same thing here you know sanctuary status sounds great until you have to provide the sanctuary as long as you're making the mayors in 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 in, in all of the texas towns and in uh, arizona as long as you're making them deal with it you're just gloriously happy with the wonderful open arms and welcoming nature of our country as long as somebody else has to give the hugs, as long as somebody else has to provide the meals, provide the health care, provide the education, and more. That's just the blatant hypocrisy of the American left. And, you know, I'm going to tell you something. I, I had a story here, and it's one of the stories posted right now as the top stories on um, alwaysright.us, my website. <clears throat> There's an article uh, from the College Fix that I have linked about a University of Michigan professor who said that academics like her have a professional duty to denounce the GOP. All right? Republicans say professors are the enemy, said Professor Silky Maria Wynick at Michigan. She wrote this in an essay to the Chronicle of Higher Education last week. She says, Republicans say professors are the enemy. They're right. We are, she said. Under the circumstances, it is not merely acceptable to denounce the GOP, she writes. Clearly, loudly, profanely, it is our ethical and professional duty. She said it's her duty. It's all academics' duty to denounce the Republican Party. She went on to write that Republicans have a long-standing contempt for knowledge and expertise in fields that include history, public health, climate change, or ecology. While writing her essay calling for the denunciation of half the country, Wynick argued that colleges are not, in fact, left-wing institutions. Rather, they are hierarchical operations largely dedicated to reproducing a social order that benefits the upper middle class, liberals and conservatives alike. She said that Republicans are ready to wage open war with colleges, intent on confiscating the social capital they wield, and that this is a moment of considerable peril. She said that professors being the enemy is correct and that they have a duty to denounce the GOP. Now, I I shouldn't have to be overwhelmingly 
critical of this because I think you get it and you understand how insane that is. But I want to provide some context here from my own point of view because I go on these airwaves every day, almost every day, and tell you about the contempt that I have for the Democrat Party. And I tell you how, you know, in this time of, you know, supposed, uh, you know, aspirational unity, and I have to use the word aspirational there because we have no unity, but so many people say we need to unite as a country. We need to come together. We need to get Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and leftists together. And I say hogwash, garbage. There is no unity coming when we have the types of stark differences that we do between the two ideologies. They believe babies should be able to be executed literally the moment before they're born. We believe that preborn lives matter. I will not come to an agreement with somebody that says you can reach inside a mother's womb and execute a child literally moments before it's born, with no exceptions, without apology. Never. Never. They want you to believe that a male can get together with another male and conceive and bear a child. There's no unifying with that. There's none. They want you to believe that a four-year-old or an eight-year-old who thinks that they're a dog should be provided a food bowl on the floor and a place to relieve themselves that isn't a human bathroom. And they should be, they should be called these, 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 these expressive little kids should be called whatever they want to be called. There's no unifying with that. There just isn't. Democrats are hypocritical. Democrats worship a form of evil that I think is very, very difficult for most people to comprehend. And so you, so people may say, well, how are you going to criticize this, this Ann Arbor, Michigan professor for saying it's their duty to criticize, uh, and to condemn um the uh and it's their it's their ethical and professional duty to condemn the GOP and to denounce the GOP if you're doing the same thing about the Democrat party. And you want to know what the difference is? I'm a talk show host. I'm paid to deliver my opinions based upon research, based upon a knowledge of history, based upon uh, politics, based upon uh, current events and historical ones. I mean, literally, this is what my job is. This is what I do. And no one, literally no one, is forced to listen to them. But what this left-wing nut job University of Michigan professor is saying is very, very different. These are the educators, the educators who are responsible for the future, the next generation of American leaders. And people do have to listen to them. Unlike me, if they don't like what I'm talking about, it can be turned off. If you want a college degree, and we're all told about how extraordinarily valuable college degrees are, you certainly can't make a living without a college degree. If you want a college degree, you have to go into these places, and you have to listen to them. And then, not only do you have to listen to them, you have to agree with them and regurgitate the bile that they are spewing forth from their mouths into your brains. You have to regurgitate it back to them in order to get the right grades, in order to get that ever-important degree. Do you see the difference? 
These people are supposed to provide education, and instead they are absolute indoctrination centers. They're absolute grooming centers. And kids who want a degree have no choice but to sit in those classes and listen to it and say nothing in opposition to it, silence any dissent that they might have, swallow any objections that they might want to express for fear of getting a bad grade and not getting what they need to survive in this in this world. That's something Peter and I are going to talk about here in just a bit. He's talking. He's going to talk about wokeness on campuses. He's going to talk about Oberlin College, which we've talked about, and and a number of other things. But the reality of the situation is when they literally make it their mission and they say it out loud, they say it out loud that they are going to condemn and criticize Republican values, Republican points of view, Republican ideology. They're going to criticize that and condemn that, and and. Their students have to agree with it. That is a far cry from a talk show host saying, I've had enough of this, and I've had enough of that. Nobody gets a degree from me. You get smarter, but you don't get an actual degree. You want the degree that's going to help you get a good job? You've got to go listen to her. You've got to go listen to Professor Silky Maria Wynick at Michigan or any one of her thousands upon thousands of other like-minded professors, academics, who are going to tell you what to think and how to think. You listen to me, you get smarter. You listen to them, you get the degree. I understand the need for the degree. It's sad, but it's true in many, many cases. I understand if you want the degree, you've got to go and do that. But if they're going to be the ones providing the ultra-important degree that's going to set you up for your future, then they damn well have a right to present all ideas and to allow all ideas including those that disagree those that dissent from the prevailing narrative of academia to be presented otherwise it's worth nothing less than nothing all right 953 always right radio right back take bob on the go by downloading the whk radio app on the google play store Okay, 957, now Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. I think it's an astounding uh, uh, statement for, for that professor to make, to say, hey, um, it's our duty, it's our professional responsibility to denounce and to condemn the GOP, telling their college students, millions upon millions of, uh, of them across the country, that when they graduate, they need to uh, make sure that they are nice, loyal Democrat subjects, little socialists being trained to become full-on Marxists by the time they get into their adult years and denounce anything having to do with you know constitutionalism, the rule of law, liberty, equality for all, and so forth. It will all be replaced by D.I.E., Diversity, inclusion, and equity. And yes, I know a lot of people call it DEI, but I will always pronounce or I will always put it in the order of DIE because that's exactly what they're doing is they are killing American uh the American dream. They're killing the American Republic as it was gifted to us. Peter Kersenow writes about this and talks about it too. He's going to be joining us after the top of the hour news. Uh Pete is uh is all over the Oberlin story. He's all over the BYU Duke story and is going to be all over these airwaves. Joining me after the top of the hour news, stay here. Hour number two of Always Wait Radio is coming up on AM fourteen twenty the answer.
You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420. The answer. Hour number two underway now. Eight minutes past 10 o'clock. Thanks for being with us on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. Since it is a Tuesday, the 13th morning of the ninth month of the year of our Lord, 2022, you know what you are here for. Tuesday is Cursinow Day. you dig it! Peter Cursinow, longest-serving member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He is a Cleveland attorney. He's a best-selling author. He is back to being a regular contributor to NRO, National Review Online. And, of course, he is our favorite favorite guest uh, each week on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, Kersenow, um I did not watch the Browns game on Sunday as part of my protest. Uh, I did try to reach you Sunday and could not. So I'm going to put one plus one together here and assume that you were on the field getting Kersenow for one, yes? Well, you know, I just barely, the time ran out. What can I tell you? You know? What? <laughs> oh, I figured, I, I can't reach Pete. It's Sunday, they must have, he must have gotten his play. I wanted to know if he made the catch or not. Come on, Pete. No, I didn't, I didn't have, uh, there, there were no uh, passes thrown to me. So, uh, you know, but there's 15 more games to go, so uh, it's always possible. Oh, okay. I didn't know where it was a whole season-long goal. I thought it had to be for the opener. Just one and you were done. So, no, I'm, look, look uh, I, I need to catch a pass. You know, it's going to be an out pattern. Probably going to be a short one, but what I'm going to do is, and I'll telegraph to everybody, it's going to be an out pattern, but then before I go out of bounds, I'm going to turn upfield just as the uh, defensive back holds up because he thinks I'm going out of bounds and he doesn't get called for an illegal hit, and then I'm going to take it into the house. <laughs> I like the plan. You might want to think about going to uh, see if you can volunteer for the practice squad just to show them that you still have those skills. I don't know if you got the time for that. Okay, Peter, um, let's uh, let's dive into uh, some very important news here. Um, you wrote uh, for NRO about Gibsons, and uh, and I want to talk about that. I've spent a lot of time talking about that really since the entire event happened. I was on the scene during their protests. I went down there. I actually talked with some of the students after um, uh, the um, uh, the uh, incident happened. I talked to one of the professors who was there who was trying to tell the other students not to talk to me because they knew who I was. Uh, so I was kind of at this thing from the very beginning and followed it as closely as I could uh, through the meandering court system, legal system, through now six years of appeals before it all finally uh, came to a conclusion. And yes, Oberlin is paying, or somebody is paying, roughly $36.5 million to the Gibsons. Now, you wrote about this making the woke pay. Um, are you satisfied with the outcome of this, Pete? Uh, no, I'm not satisfied. It should never have happened in the beginning. But I think the reason I wrote it is because I think it should serve as a template, a difficult template for most people to follow. That is, suing somebody is an ordeal. It's expensive. It's time-consuming. It's gut-wrenching. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. Um, but for a long time in this country, we've allowed people to level perhaps the worst epithet in you, you can level in America at someone. That is, to call someone a racist with impunity. 
They do so cavalierly, regardless of whether or not there's a substantive basis for it, or they act as if you're a racist or, or suggest or allude to the fact that you're a racist. And you know how damaging that is. As I've said in the article, it's a very short piece, but I think all of your listeners would concur that one of the worst things in America that you can call someone is a racist because that stain is almost indelible, regardless of whether or not at some later point the facts clearly show, and in this case, the facts almost immediately showed that it was false, yet Oberlin continued to perpetuate it out of wokeness. Um, but, you know, at, at, uh, at some point when you have a verdict, which is, as you indicated, five to six years later, uh, by that time the damage has been done, and it's difficult to, you know, pick up the pieces. Yes, the um, Gibsons are going to get $36 million dollars. People, most people say, oh, that's a lot of money. That, that doesn't recompense you for the pain, the suffering you go through. And what it does is when, when um, you see the, the, you know, justice delayed is justice denied. In this case, frankly, five, five and a half years is not a long period of time in litigation, especially with all the appeals. Um, so uh, even though it's not a long time, for most people, you understand that's a long time. It's a grueling thing to do. And for the average person who's been wrongly accused of racism, finding a lawyer, uh, finding the funds, the wherewithal to go through this, the gut-wrenching process you go through, that's a proposition most want to avoid. And it, as I say, that will embolden those who just cavalierly throw around that epithet, and we know that it happens on a regular basis uh, in a false sense. Now, in Gibson's case, um, we saw what happened with the media. The media almost immediately ran with the presumption that, in fact, there was some racism involved. We saw with the recent BYU incident, um, I think, you know, most of your listeners are probably aware of it. Let's hold off on that one, because uh, because it deserves its own uh, discussion. Sure, sure. But, you know, I will say that, going back to what I was initially going to, I've been on the Civil Rights Commission for more than 20 years, and I get, that comes across my email, or I get phone calls, or even mail, with respect to various allegations, reports of racism, racist conduct, discriminatory um, treatment, and such a large percentage of them are just palpably false, and then later proven to be false. And then, what I try to do is I try to follow up and see, well, what transpired after it was established that something's false, and usually nothing. The person who has leveled the accusation goes away with impunity. Nothing happens, and sometimes they're celebrated. Uh, you know, you, you look at, for example, uh, this is maybe not the best example, but Jesse Smollett raised a, on its face a ridiculous allegation. I mean, we made fun of it because it was so stupid, yet all of the media ran with it as if it was true. And people's lives were damaged as a result of that, you know? And reputations of entire departments, in this case, Chicago Police Department and others, you know, are damaged as a result of it. And then Trump voters are besmirched as supposedly MAGA-wearing, you know, at 20 20 degrees below zero, out there with MAGA hats at 2 o'clock in the morning uh, in Chicago, as if that is Trump country. I mean, it was just so false and absurd on its face, but the media ran with it and besmirched, you know, entire swaths of the American populace. And then, you know, let's let's let's. Yeah, we're getting too broad, I think, right now. I want to stay narrow on on Gibson's for a moment, Um, because what you said a moment ago, Peter Kersenow, I think is very important. Justice delayed is justice denied. And I think justice has been denied here. I don't care that $36 million is going to be paid. Justice has been denied here. Because for the last six years, 
that family has gone through some trauma that you can't really imagine. Gibson's was founded over 130 years ago, that store opened, with the Gibson family name on it. They worked through all of the pre-civil rights era, Jim Crow. I mean, they were one of the most progressive and, and open, uh, um, openly supportive you know, businesses in the entire Midwest when it came to women's rights, much less uh, uh, minority rights in terms of African Americans. I mean, they 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 prided themselves on being, you know, welcoming civil rights supporters and so forth. And you know, the two oldest um, uh, living members of the family that were running it, Alan Gibson Sr. and then his son Dave, both died within the last six years. They didn't get justice. They died knowing that the world was, was, was hearing the college, Oberlin College, call their family racists, that their family and the people they hire had, had systemically racist policies that led to this, this punk who was not only trying to buy alcohol with a fake ID, also was stealing alcohol, two bottles of wine in his coat at the same time because that was a part of the tradition at Oberlin College, steal something from Gibson's. It was literally written on the bulletin boards in dorm rooms, steal something from Gibson's, something that all freshmen had to do to become real Oberlin College students. And, and so these two guys, Pete, went to their graves thinking that that's what the world thought of them. Um, I talked to Alan Gibson on Sunday, the, the younger, who was the individual who was involved in the center of this as he tried to stop the thieves from leaving and then got the crap beat out of him for it. Um, and, you know, they were on the verge of bankruptcy. They were literally about to go under. I was about to start a GoFundMe, but with a different organization than the left-wing GoFundMe, to try to get enough money into their coffers just to keep them open. Uh, a number of, of, of people were, because I knew how desperate they were. So the, the, the struggles that they suffered through for the last six years are not made up for by a $36 million check, number one. And number two, according to what Alan told me, he has heard from uh, uh, sources, I guess, close to the college saying they're not losing a dime from their endowment anyway, that this is covered by their insurance, that the insurance company is going to pay that judgment anyway. Uh, so they're not going to suffer much. And worse yet, Pete, they never apologized. They never admitted as a part of this now being over, we're sorry. We, we shouldn't have done what we did. We shouldn't have allowed the professor who led this uh, and so forth and the students to do this. To do, to do the damage that they did. Not one uh, uh, acknowledgement or admission of, of guilt in this whole thing. So to me, justice has been completely denied in this, no matter, no matter when that uh, $36 million check arrives. Yeah, and, and that's a very good recitation. I would say this, that um, you know, justice delayed is justice denied, but in this case, at least there was a lawsuit in 99% of the cases like this in Oberlin, you know, uh, and the uh, Gibsons, that's not an isolated situation. This happens almost on a daily basis somewhere across the country where some false allegation is leveled. Sometimes it doesn't get the degree of publicity that a Gibsons does or the BYU case does or others, but they happen. I see them on the Civil Rights Commission on a regular basis. And you're right that most of the people on the receiving end don't bring lawsuits for a variety of reasons. The cost, the length of time, just the, the aggravation, the, the yeah. pain that you have to go through to, to do that. It's really, really gut-wrenching. It's life-changing, as you indicated. And as you indicated, the two Gibsons who died in the process uh, or during the course of this. So um, the, the point that I was trying to make on um, the NRO piece mm -hmm. is that for such a long time, 
thousands of allegations, unfounded allegations, spurious, outrageous allegations of racism have been made against just good law-abiding, decent people, and their lives have been destroyed, and there's been no deterrence. And in fact, there's encouragement to do so. And in this case, an entire institution, a university, a college participated in this. You had you had a dean, you had professors, you had others that blithely and cavalierly besmirch good, honest, hardworking, for lack of a better term, townies. You know, we used to call them townies when you yeah. go to school. Yeah, sure. And, you know, uh, they were, a lot of people would look down on the townies because, you know, we are, you know, important students here. We're educated. The townies, you know, they're just these blue-collar people. And th- this so happens... True across the country, and it is, um, there are hardly any deterrence. The Gibsons will be maybe a slight deterrence, but the point I wanted to make is I'm hopeful, and again, I don't say this cavalierly, and I'm not encouraging litigation, don't get me wrong, but this is an example. Uh, If you want to put these spurious allegations to rest, and it doesn't merely mean putting them to rest in, in the interests of the specific individuals who are the objects of these allegations, the entire country suffers because of this. These false allegations of racism, and this is a systemic racist country, and all of these CNN and MSNBC anchors that run with these stories. The, the first thing, you know, the old thing about, uh, you know, the, the uh, a lie uh, goes around the earth before the truth has a chance to put its shoes on. Yeah. Um, CNN, they go out and they say these things, but then if they ever retract, by then the story is already out there and people don't make, pay any attention to the retractions or corrections. Always. And it perpetuates this notion. It divides the country. It's poisonous to our society. And although I'm not encouraging litigation, my point was that if you had a couple more of these verdicts, maybe then someone would think twice. And, you know, you look at the... Um, Um, There there are a couple of other high-profile cases. We had Nick Sandman, for example. Um, A few more of those may cause people to pause just a little bit. I don't expect you're going to see a sea change among the Wokarati on campus. That's, you know... That's a prodigious undertaking to get them to change. But I guarantee that even if that $36 million is principally paid out of insurance, that has repercussions nonetheless. I mean, Oberlin's reputation has been harmed, and also they've got to pay. You know, you don't pay out a $36 million judgment with insurance premiums not going up, and that gets people's attention. It does. And so even an institution that's got a $1 billion endowment, so other institutions take a look at that, and is it going to cause them to stop in their tracks? No, unfortunately it won't, but perhaps maybe another one and another one will cause them to slow down a little bit and stop poisoning society in the manner in which they've been doing. Well, they're, they're, they're still doing it in other institutions, which is one of the other stories we're going to get to after this short time out, Pete. We're going to talk about BYU, Brigham Young University, the Mormon-founded university in Utah, accused of racism by another university. And uh, CNN and the uh, mainstream media could not get these, this news out uh, fast enough. Breathlessly, they reported this horrible, horrible crime against an African-American volleyball player from Duke University by the uh, racists at Brigham Young University. And we'll talk next about uh, the follow-up to that. Peter Kirsch now with us right after this on AM 1420, The Answer.
Okay, 1026 now. We continue on AM 1420, The Answer. It's Always Right Radio, and our good friend Peter Kersenow is still with us. Pete, you started on the BYU story. I wanted to stop it there because um, I didn't want it to be a footnote in the Oberlin story. It's got its own message, and we need to discuss it. So um, it, it's kind of Jussie. You also brought up Jussie. I kind of saw what happened uh, with the BYU accusation is the, you know, the, the Jussie Smollett volleyball version. Why don't you give us the background on that story? Because it's it's just as ridiculous as the Jesse story was. I think it has more in common with yeah. that one probably than the Oberlin story does. Uh, but the media was more than willing to trumpet the message before finding out any of the facts. Go ahead. It, it was completely implausible. Does anyone today plausibly believe uh, in this hyperbolic atmosphere, hyper-woke atmosphere at colleges that anyone in a public setting would dare publicly call someone the N-word? Everyone knows immediately that is ridiculous, yet the media went with it. What happened is, during a volleyball match uh, between the female teams of BYU and Duke, the... One of the servers for Duke maintained that every single time she served, someone yelled out the N-word at her. Okay? Uh, I'll fast forward. The bottom line is everyone knows that that was completely false the minute you heard it. More than than the N-word, Pete, if I may, because she also claimed that she was threatened. So what words were those? What, what I'm going to get you? I mean, there were there had to be something that somebody would have heard because she said they used the N-word at me every time I served, and they were threatening me. And I want to know what yeah. those threats were, but I'm sorry. Continue. Now, in any kind of an auditorium where you're going to have one of these games, you're going to, if to, to, for a player to hear that, almost everyone else would have had to heard it. So BYU conducts an investigation. By the way, the... the um, player who alleges this has a godmother who is a politico who tweeted this stuff out just saying that you know this happened to her um uh, uh, her niece or something i can't remember uh, what the relationship is but it's also godmother um so in any event byu first of all they suspend this one individual who apparently you know they believed may have been involved in it the person is described as having special needs and is suspended from campus okay trial versed or or verdict first trial later in this particular circumstance so that person has been defamed simply by those actions then they conduct an investigation again (laughs) you know uh, verdict first trial later this is the process that universities go through these days so they ask everybody they review film they talk to 50 different witnesses who may have plausibly been in a position or heard not one instance where they where there's any evidence that this had in fact occurred. And um, the fact of the matter is nobody's retracting it. Nobody's retracting anything on the other side. They're not retracting a thing. The South Carolina, I think it's Dawn Staley is the basketball coach yes. for, for South Carolina. She says they're canceling all the games that they're going to have against BYU. Again, this is nuts. This is sheer lunacy. And But what was remarkable about this is I was not aware of it. You know, everything that happens with respect to discrimination doesn't immediately cause, come to the attention of the Civil Rights Commission. I was just watching something or other, and I saw a raft of 
stories about this, you saw these anchors from the CNNs, again, and the MSNBCs of the world, the ABCs, CBSs, simply running with the allegation. I thought that reporters were supposed to run down the facts, not allegations. I can make allegations, for example, I've just been abducted by space aliens. You know, you don't run with that, of course. And, and this is almost as implausible as being abducted by space aliens. Nobody in 2022 on a college campus in the United States of America would dare say that because their lives would be over. They wouldn't get jobs. They'd be expelled from school. This is just ridiculous. So everybody in the world, I, I wager, every single one of your listeners knew when they heard it that that was wrong. But there will be, uh, at this point, there have been no consequences to the people making the allegations or acting no. as if these allegations were and true. And not one media outlet, Pete, has has, has reported right. that the, the, that that BYU is investing. Remember, this is a closed environment. It's a gymnasium. It's not an outdoor football field where you know maybe a ton of people in an outdoor setting. You can't hear every single thing that somebody says. Maybe something did get yelled in a gymnasium. And I'm sorry when I say this. I'm not. I, my daughter played volleyball. I absolutely love the sport. It's not going to be packed with 20,000 people. It's right. going to be have a good good crowd in there, but you are going to hear when people say something. The fact that no one from either school anywhere ever other than the accusing player, somebody named, I think, Rochelle Richardson, no one heard anything. And as you said, they reviewed videotapes, which come complete with audio. None of this ever happened. And CNN and the mainstream media that put it out there immediately as if it were fact, as you say, conclusion or verdict before the trial, uh, they are now not reporting anything about the fact that this is totally... You know what it is, Pete? It's Jesse and it's LeBron. It's LeBron. It, it is. And, and that, that is his painted gate out in L.A. And it's, it's going to continue unless somebody suffers consequences. Bingo. And unfortunately, the most relevant consequence is a lawsuit, the pain of going through one, and hopefully a verdict uh, with damages afterward. I hope that's the case, too. Peter Kirsten, I will come right back after the news. we got more on AM 1420, The Answer. Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always right radio with Bob France on The Answer. 1040 now, always right radio on AM 1420. The Answer. Got one more segment left with Peter Kirsch now, who, if he does get his one play in for the Cleveland Browns this year, he will be the, I think, second, second oldest player in the league uh, after Tom Brady. Which, uh, <laughs> Pete, you know, it's funny. We joke, we joke all the time about you and uh, you know the incredible shape that you're in. You're in your sixties, and uh, Tom Brady's forty five years old. Uh, it's amazing. It just That's can't amazing. happen. And to be, and to continue to be, if not the very best quarterback in the league, the same way he was when he was twenty five and thirty five, he's at least in the top five still. Yep. Uh, and a favorite to 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 go to the Super Bowl again. I mean, that's just there's you you mentioned about being um, abducted by space aliens. Brady might have been. They might have done yeah. something to him because this is just not. It's not possible. It's not human for somebody to be able to yeah, play it's that position amazing, at this level. Especially a guy who's a sixth-round draft choice. Remember, he's a sixth-round draft choice, and we went to the New England Patriots originally. I remember that you know the story of him being on the practice field, and it was in preseason, and Robert Kraft, the owner, was walking along the field, and you know he's not going to pay any attention to some sixth-round draft choice who the likelihood is is not going to be on the team for that much longer anyway. But uh, nonetheless, Brady said, "I'm you know I'm going to show everybody that they made a mistake." 
And boy, did they show him. I mean, he is, you know, we talk about goats all the time. And boy, oh boy, uh, Tom Brady has got just about every record. He has got a million Super Bowl rings. Uh, truly, I, you know, my hat's off to Tom Brady. I really, you know, there are a lot of athletes out there who are great. Uh, but, you know, he's comported himself to the extent I can tell as, you know, a good individual. Not that he's perfect. Nobody's ever perfect. We hate, you know, we, we engage in hagiography about these guys. But you know what? Um, he's done it the right way. Yeah, he was the 199th overall pick uh, in that uh, in in his uh, in his draft, which is pretty pretty astounding. Okay, Pete, um, midnight struck. Um, the uh, carriage turned back into a pumpkin, and uh, the comment period is over now. It's closed for Title IX changes. Record number of comments have been made uh, by, I'm I'm certain, an overwhelming majority of concerned parents who do not want girls to and women to take a major step backward um, in the last, uh, you know, for, uh, compared to what they have done, uh, uh, the advances they made in the last 50 years. That's a clumsy way of saying it. Um, but literally, um, there have been just enormous gains for girls, particularly in, in sports and in opportunities since the implementation of Title IX 50 years ago. And now Joe Biden wants to change it and erase girls from being in existence, adding, well, if you think you're one, gender identity, you're going to get the same protections, as they like to call them, that actual girls do, which, of course means that girls protections will be removed um i don't think it's going to move the needle i don't think uh, the biden administration is going to do anything differently but what is your what is your take on this you wrote another article boys showering with girls part two what what will be the impact of this if and when uh these title nine changes are made pete yeah, we we need several hours to talk about this bob because there's several components to this rule this regulation that the Biden Department of Education has proposed. And it was written by a colleague of a former colleague of mine who was at one time chair of the Civil Rights Commission up until three years ago. And she had tried this once before when she was in the same position under the Obama administration. That is radically alter Title IX, which, as most of your listeners know, is the provision in federal law that mandates or guarantees that women's sports will be treated uh, for all intents and purposes on an equal basis with men's sports. So there's an equal opportunity for females to engage in uh, uh, athletic activity. Uh, but it goes beyond that. <clears throat> In, in this case, it's not just at the collegiate level, it's uh, K through 12, and they were mandating, for example, that um, boys who identify as girls be permitted to shower, use the same showers, restrooms, and uh, other intimate facilities as the, I, the gender with which they identify, the sex with which they identify. Now, we could talk about this for a long, long time. There's so many uh, just uh, there's so many counter arguments there's so many fallibilities with respect to the assumptions related to this and your listeners probably know them intuitively this is not something that requires an expert but one of the things that we're going to be seeing very very quickly is the introduction of a lot more boys into girls locker rooms i mean it's one of the things that i guarantee you bob you i know you did and i know i did fantasized about this stuff in high school well it's going to become a reality now. We fantasized about it knowing it would never come to pass, and it was just a joke. But nonetheless, now it's going to happen, and your daughters are going to have to deal with boys showering next to them, using the uh, toilets next to them, uh, so on and so forth. It, it is already happening, and there have been a number of lawsuits related to this, mainly brought by parents of girls who object to this. 
And when you read the cases, it is really a lesson in the wokerati and the, the, the fact that wokeness has captured most of our elite institutions. The blithe manner in which our federal courts dismiss the concern of parents and kids who are forced to share intimate facilities with members of the opposite sex. In fact, there's one case that I don't have in front of me. I wish I would have thought about this. Read the passage. It would have really alarmed your listeners because the kind of blithe manner in which the court addressed the concerns of a uh, a student who had to shower next to a person of the opposite sex. What the court said was, yes, we recognize, I'm just kind of paraphrasing, we recognize that this particular girl in this instance uh, felt as if she was traumatized and that a lot of the students will do things such as fast so they don't have to use the bathroom. They become yeah. dehydrated. Yeah. They will, you know, they, they take all kinds of, they, they sicken themselves as a result of this to try to avoid this, okay? But they think that that doesn't justify treating this student um, in a way that would cause them to suffer harm. So it's the interest of the one supersede the interests of the many. Uh, it, it is really kind of a cavalier way in which the courts to this point have been approaching this. Now, there are a lot of things to work out here. I'm not saying that, you know, you can just simply say, well, we're going to disregard the concerns of somebody who, you know, identifies as someone else. You know, I, I, I'm not going to get into that, into that at this particular point. That's a long-ranging discussion. But the manner in which the courts and, frankly, most of our elites dismiss the concerns of the many and their parents is truly instructive in the manner in which we are going here. But this Title IX rule that the Department of Education under Biden administration has promulgated would require any school receiving federal funds to permit this kind of transgender um, accommodation and that means just about every school, because every school gets something, you know. And yeah. if you try to stop that, you're going to be going through bureaucratic hell, and the Biden administration will make sure that you go through bureaucratic hell. So coming to a – and by the way, despite the fact that there were a record number of comments in opposition, by record, I mean it exceeds – I do this for a living. I mean, I litigate rules all the time. Um, this just blew the doors off of any comment for any rule in the past. But despite the fact that the overwhelming number of them, I mean, almost universally. You have a ballpark were, number, again, Pete? Uh, I think it was in the neighborhood of 187,000, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Uh, nothing even, go usually you get maybe a couple dozen comments. You know, sometimes trade groups, industry groups that have a particular interest in a rule that's being com uh, uh, promulgated will ask their members to submit individual ones so you have a greater number. Uh, but this one blew the doors off. Clearly, parents were engaged. And, and what, what does the law alarmed. say, Pete? What does the law say about the, the requirement of the administration to consider them or to read them or to whatever? Well, before a rule gets passed, you've got to go through the notice and comment period, and the, the administration is required to consider these things. It doesn't have to necessarily adopt them, but where the, you know, there's an overwhelming, the presumption is where the overwhelming number of comments make a reasonable position on something that that will be used to maybe reform the proposed rule or the manner in which it's interpreted. It also provides information to courts when litigating 
the interpretation of these rules. So those comments are extremely important. It's not merely just kind of a pro forma where, you know, okay, thanks for your comments to try to assuage the interests of, of the, the great unwashed out there, you know, make them seem as if they've got an interest. They, they really do have an effect. And I know at least one case that I litigated uh, just, uh, in fact, uh, the Justice Department, I had, I had beaten the, the government, and the Justice Department was going, had filed, uh, was going to file certain and declined at the last minute. But we went to the D.C. Circuit on one, and I remember thinking of a number of different arguments, and we used the comments that uh, the, the text of the comments, the ideas in the comments, to persuade the court in our favor. It was, um, you know, very, very helpful. So these things aren't merely an opportunity to vent. They do inform the manner in which these uh, rules are interpreted by courts, but they also could affect if a administration is actually doing this in good faith, it could affect the final outcome of the rule. That is, the rule could be amended to accommodate some of the interests expressed in the comments. Um, that is uh, that is good to know, because, Pete, you know, the danger here is so much bigger <clears throat> than people realize, because even some of the a- advocates of changing Title IX and some of the ad- you know, allies of the LGBT, you know, they say, you know, what is wrong with somebody who, who really, really thinks they're in the wrong body? And this is a boy. He wears a dress. He wears makeup. Uh, he, he really thinks he's a female. Give this person the benefit of the doubt. And the problem with that is, uh, Peter, is if you if you give that benefit of the doubt, then you have to give the benefit of the doubt to all of the different gender identities and expressions that people invent, including the ones who say, well, no, I'm non-binary. I'm really not a female, but I'm not a male either. It depends on the day or I'm two-spirit. One day I feel male. One day I feel female. And so you, now you don't even have to you know, go through the process of wearing the makeup, wearing the girl's clothes, and really saying this is who I think I am. I might really have gender dysphoria. Now all a all a horny teenage boy has to do is say, oh, look, I'm non-binary. I'm not male all the time. Sometimes I'm female, and I get to go into that shower room with real girls. And that's acceptable, and not only acceptable, protected. It's protected, his right to yep. do that, or its right to do that, or the way they would say it is their right to do that. Is, is, is not something that we can interfere with. And so that's what the danger here is. Once you green light this for quote unquote trans people, of which when it comes to actual gender dysphoria, the percentage of people who actually have this is so minuscule you can't even find it, rather than the trendy people and the, um, the like worshipers, the ones who look for likes online, the ones who look for, look how cool I am, I'm part of the, I'm part of the scene, I'm trans too, or the ones who have been coerced into doing so by teachers and by other people in their lives to claim that they are something else. This is so much bigger than that, Pete. If you accept gender expression slash identity as, uh, as, as a right to have the same protections that girls do by Title IX, then you literally open the floodgates for everybody. There will be no separation. Right. There will be no separation of private areas ever again. Yeah, but, and what, Not to mention there, the there teams. No, yeah, there are no limiting principles. And it's all a matter of self-identification. You know, there's no objective standard here by right. which to judge these Just rules. Whatever, use, whatever um, I say and, goes. And then, you know, it's the the bathroom issues, you know, and we've already had the instance of Loudoun County where a girl was raped by a guy claiming to, you know, identify as a girl. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there and there are several of those. You hear about that uh, high-profile one, but there are, there are more than that. Um, and we can expect more of that to happen. Um, but, you know, these rules also impact the Leah Thomas case, you know, with Leah Thomas, who was a male, competed against females and obliterated 
all of the female NCAA records. I mean, it was not even close. It, it was it was extraordinary. And what you're going to see, and it's happening already, we're seeing at the high school level and the collegiate level, not just in swimming, but in track and field, where you, can you remember, Bob, the last time you saw a biological female try out for the Alabama Crimson Tide? <laughs> no, I don't seem to have that one in my memory. Right. You, you, you don't see that happening. It's always males transitioning and trying to compete on female teams. Um, and even if that is, is, is all right, the fact, I mean, even if that's the case, that it's that binary, and I don't mean to use the term in that fashion, but, but it's only males uh, transitioning to females that compete in these sports. The fact of the matter is you have a number of girls who are getting their, frankly, their, their youths, and their experiences have been completely destroyed because we're accommodating one individual here. Um, yes, the United States of America is a compassionate country. We try to com- accommodate people to the extent we can. But, you know, sometimes common sense needs to prevail here. And also the interests of the many should sometimes take primacy. Not sometimes, in most cases, with few exceptions, take primacy. But we're not doing that. Uh, we are living through a period of time where, I would argue, we've lost our minds. There's and no we're not acting we're, we're not acting or behaving as responsible adults and we have an op- uh, obligation as responsible adults to do just that we know the ways of the world and how things operate and we should act as such not as if we're coming into this as if we were born afresh and everything is new to us and we have no traditions or history upon which we can depend and make judgments upon uh, but that's where we are and th- this is a dangerous proposition I'm, I-, I don't think the Biden administration is going to be swayed whatsoever because they're ideologues and especially the person in charge of this is an ideologue so there you have no doubt. Peter, um, God willing, this country survives another hundred years, and God willing, history can be written accurately, because I can only imagine a hundred years from now what they will write about this era, what they will yep. write about this time in our civilization. Peter Kersenow, United States Commission on Civil Rights, always a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Bob. You got it. All right, 10.55 now, Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Miss something you want to hear? Check out the Always Right Radio podcast anytime at whkradio.com. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by Keeping Medicare Simple and The Floor King. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools, and our honored dead who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. Onward into hour number three, we roll eight minutes past 11 o'clock. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. 
It's a Tuesday, the thir- 13th morning of the ninth month of the year of our Lord, 2022. If you missed Kersenow, you'll have to catch Kersenow on the uh, podcast side. Alwaysright.us. It'll be up there after the show. It can also be found at whkradio.com. Make sure that you do indeed check that out. Pete had a lot of very important information on a lot of very important issues, not the least of which is that Title IX uh, proposed changes that uh, over, I think he said, 185,000 or so Americans commented on to try to tell the Brandon administration to leave girls' sports and girls' protections alone. So uh, check that out. I want to welcome to our program now a member of the Ohio Republican Party's State Central Committee in District 5. You probably also have heard of her as a representative of Ohio Stands Up, and she is Jessica Franz, who joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer, to talk about the state of the ORP after Friday's very, very strange meeting and uh, the stay of execution that was engineered by Bob Paduchik, uh when it comes to his chairmanship of the party. Uh, Jessica, thanks for the time this morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on this morning. I appreciate it. I appreciate the work you did on that substack. My goodness, did you go to town. You really, really covered everything up one side and down the other when it comes to the state of the state central committee, the state of the ORP, and, uh, you know, why you decided to run. First of all, congratulations, uh, on, on your victory there. And then you talk about, um, you know, that first meeting. So, uh, we covered it pretty well with Jack Windsor and a number of others <clears throat> leading up to Shannon Burns also leading up to this past Friday's meeting, at which Bob Paduchik should have uh, held and conducted as the chair uh, what the bylaws say that he should have conducted and held, and that is elections for the top five positions um, in the new uh, in the new state central committee. But he used a unique rule, uh, kind of a back room kind of a, a, a situation. He managed to uh, delay the election that was supposed to be held on Friday until next January. Can you tell us more about that, please? Sure. So I went into this meeting with the clear purpose to show that you know, the chairman is not following Ohio law or the bylaws. Mm-hmm. Um, I had just taken an oath to uphold the Constitution, to up- uphold the o- ORP bylaws, and I wasn't about to go along with a reorganizational meeting, which is what it had been referred to in the letter he sent out in early August to all of these state central committee members. So I had read ORC 3517.04. I had read through our bylaws. I had talked to many people who have been in the political realm much longer than I have. I had sought legal opinion, and there was only one conclusion that I could make. Uh, the, The meeting that we were holding was not a reorganizational meeting. It was to be an organizational meeting. Mm -hmm. So we've got the ORC 3517.04, which governs organizational meetings for state central committees, and it clearly states that state central committee members shall meet following the declaration of the results by the Board of Elections at a suitable time and place designated by the retiring uh, chairman in accordance with the party rules. Now, some would argue that the law doesn't specify that the organizational meeting is necessarily the quote-unquote first meeting following the election of members, and therefore the organizational meeting could take place at the second meeting, which would be in January. But here's where things get really confusing. The law clearly states, quote, in accordance with party rules. So what do our party rules, otherwise known as the bylaws, state? While in Article 1, Section 2, it states 
unequivocally that organization is to take place at, quote, the first meeting of the state central committee following the election and qualification of its members, end quote. So at this point, the bylaws are in agreement with state law, but that would mean changing out a chairman in the middle of election season. So at some point, Article 2, Section 1 was added, which the chairman referred to, uh, which states that, quote, during January of each odd-numbered year, the committee shall meet and elect its officers by a majority vote, end quote. So now the problem that state central committee members are facing is that neither Article 2, Section 1, or Article 1, Section 2 of the bylaws are consistent with Ohio Revised Code if the first meeting following our election isn't held in January, which was the argument I was trying to make before Chairman Paducek at our meeting. I said, and I did kind of put this squarely on his shoulders because he is the retiring chairman to call for our first meeting. And I said, look, you didn't have to put us in this position. You could have called for the meeting in January. Then we would have been in compliance with both the Ohio Revised Code and uh, with our bylaws. But uh, as everyone knows by now, the meeting was uh, pushed forward and a lot of us, myself included, were very uncomfortable knowing that this was indeed supposed to have been our organizational meeting, but it was run as a reorganizational meeting, meaning that he just picked up right where he left off with the old committee. Wow. That's a very thorough explanation, and I'm following along on your Substack. And for those who want to follow along and read what uh, Jessica Franz is talking about here, you can do so as well. I have it linked to alwayswrite.us right now. Uh, to Jessica Substack, and so when you talk about Article One, Section Two of the ORC, or, or, excuse me, of the of, of the bylaws versus Article, uh, maybe I'm getting them backwards. I'm sorry. Article One, Section Two is the bylaws. Article Two, Section One is the ORC. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so I do understand that there is a little bit of confusion there, and it can be done a couple of different ways. What was Bob Paduchik's reaction to you when you presented this directly to him as the quote-unquote outgoing chairman? Um, really, he referred to, I think, the Brickler and Eckler opinion, which they are the uh, legal firm that wrote up our bylaws. Our parliamentarian also works for Bricker and Eckler. And basically, the Brickler, Bricker and Eckler opinion, what they really argue for when they get down, get down into the weeds of it is that they think that if 3517.04 went before a court of law, it would be most likely ruled unconstitutional. Well, there's a couple problems with that argument. First of all, they're not a court. A court opinion has not been issued. So until a court opinion has been issued on that, we are to follow Ohio law. Um, Secondly, others would argue that no, it would not be ruled unconstitutional because Ohio law absolutely can provide for the structure of a uh, and it and does provide for the um, process for a smooth transition of power within a party to help eliminate internal strife within Ohio political parties that could undermine confidence in the political process, which is what we're seeing among Ohio Republican voters right now. Um, trust has been damaged and um, confidence in our political process because we aren't following the law and the bylaws um, our voters are beginning to really question what is going on. 
you know, it's um, it's interesting. The argument that was made by uh, the the law firm and by by Paduchik himself is you don't change leadership in the middle of an election cycle, sixty days out from an election, et cetera. And yet, I think it's the presence of these type of uh, almost mafia don um, mm-hmm. uh, figures like Bob Paduchik who would do more damage to the Republican cause in this election cycle than they could uh, th- than there would be if we were elected new leadership. I mean, uh, you you even stated on your on your Substack. Uh, he's demonstrating to the new committee just how far he will go to retain his position by ignoring the Ohio Revised Code and the bylaws. And for those who have been following his actions on the committee, it comes as no surprise. His leadership of the party, if you study the history of his leadership of the party, you can expect him again to silence those seeking to hold the committee accountable to its bylaws. This is what he does. It's 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 like yeah. an old school mafia don. He is a thug. He will silence anybody. Uh, he will make everybody uh, afraid to cross him, uh, which is exactly why I think you probably you included a link in your substack to an article written by John Morrow that says the Ohio Republican chairman is destroying the credibility of the party. And I think that's accurate. How can that possibly be a good thing for a Republican 60 days out from an election? Right, right. And when I have, you know, party leadership reaching out to me, not not within my district, but I have had party leadership reach out to me. I have had um, Republican voters within my district reach out to me and say, we feel completely disenfranchised. We have no voice. Um, and we're thinking about not even voting. Uh, that's in the general election. That's alarming. That that is incredibly alarming. Exactly. Um, and but how can you blame them when we have a chairman who believes and has already spent millions on unendorsed candidates and believes that he has unlimited discretionary spending? And as state central committee members, we are to represent our constituents. We're not to delegate our viewpoints to an unelected executive. Right. And our chairman, chairman currently has a history of silencing those who are critical of the party, not following its own bylaws. He refers any resolutions that are brought forth to hold the party accountable to their own bylaws to committees that never meet. Anyone disagreeing with him uh, was removed from committee assignments last year. So, yeah, I, I think a, a good argument. He's a thug, could be and that's that how he runs this. Has already yeah. been done. And, and not to mention, yeah. there, not to mention, there's the corruption question. Not to mention the yeah. fact that there, are, according to the bylaws, there's supposed to be an annual audit. Mark Bainbridge has moved to make this audit happen. Uh, he continues to stop that as well. There's questions of what six hundred forty thousand dollars, I think, that are uh, that is unaccounted for. Um, you know, uh, in, in in terms of the statement from December third of this past year, the financial statements of 2017 through 2020 presented by the ORP Treasurer incorrectly recorded an accounts receivable balance of approximately six hundred forty thousand dollars. So, and I've heard three hundred thousand dollars thrown around. The point being. Nobody knows where the county or the uh, party finances are. Nobody knows where that money is, where it's going, and whether or not whether or not it's being used legally, you know, lawfully. Um, and and the chairman won't allow that transparency to happen. Right, right. So this this is why I think one of the things that the state central committee might want to consider exploring for the future is to have two separate roles because currently Chairman Paducek is serving as both chairman and CEO. 
So I firmly believe, and there are others on the committee that believe this as well, that the chairman should be selected from amongst the state central committee members after the primary election. Uh, he should have powers associated with a chairman like unto a board of directors. The chairman should be an unpaid position, which is only compensating for expenses. Right. It, the chairman should preside over the meetings, but he would not oversee the day-to-day -day operations of the party. And then, of course, he'd be responsible for appointing chairs to subcommittees. And that should be one position, and that person should be selected from among the state central committee members. And then we should have a CEO. This could be a full-time compensated position, a person that runs the day-to-day -day business of the party, runs the campaigns, should be hired by contract, not elected, and that the CEO really shouldn't be involved with internal conflicts of the board. And we should be providing as a committee, we should provide the process for that uh, CEO search. And I believe this also should be done after November's general election. So we would hire or renew that contract um, possibly in, in January. And there would be a, a time where that position could be advertised before we hire. So I think that would help to decentralize some of the power and some of the abuse that we're seeing taken place by a chairman who is serving in both capacities as chairman and CEO. Um, of course, that's just one reform that we could talk about. There's, there's many others. Um, I think in order for the party to move forward with sound policy and without dissension and internal strife, we've got to have policy that everyone can agree upon. So that means we need to have conversations that involve the entire central committee. We, we right. can't have the – we can't be operating with backroom deals and, and it, while accusing others of doing that. We can't be doing that ourselves. Those are the only kind of deals he knows. That's why he fears transparency so much. And uh, right. I would argue that his CEO title is cowardly executive officer because he won't talk <laughs> with anybody who isn't willing to kiss his rear end or his ring. Yeah. He won't talk to media like me. He won't talk to media like Jack Windsor. He boots them out of, of meetings and, and, uh, uh, and votes uh, because it's not favorable coverage for him. Um, and, and he's looking out for himself, not for the constituents of the uh, of the Ohio Republican Party, um, which is why this is so egregious, which is why I have challenged him and we have called him, we have emailed him, we have texted this guy. He will not talk to anybody that gives him. That's why, like you said, he boots people who disagree with him from committee uh, committees. Um, and, and that's just what thugs do. Uh, briefly, Jessica, you wrote about Brian Williams as well, who has announced his candidacy for chairman. Would he be a markedly different chairman to your understanding right now? And I know you're new to the to the um, uh, to the committee, but uh, would he be a, a different uh, type of leader than Paducek, given the fact that the two of them were in lockstep when it came to endorsing uh, embattled Governor Mike DeWine? Well, as you're, as you're already aware, several names were shared. Um, for a potential new new chair, Jim Renacci was one of those names. Brian mm -hmm. Williams was one of those names. Um, Mr. Williams was posited by many of the state central committee uh, members that I have spoken to as the best possible candidate for reasons cited that he had a track record of helping conservatives get elected. He is also a state central committee member, and he knows so he wouldn't be coming from outside of the membership, mm -hmm. and he knew how to fundraise. But... I would argue, again, and I think you've already touched on this, I don't believe that this is what my constituents from District 5, this is, this is the candidate that they are looking for. 
Um, in looking at Mr. Williams' history, he has openly supported the endorsement of Mr. DeWine before the primary. He did not spoke. He is currently the vice chair, and as far as I'm aware, he has not spoken up uh, when millions of dollars of discretionary spending had been given to DeWine without the approval of the committee by Chairman Paducek. So I think um, what my constituents would expect from me is if this is the direction that the committee decides to go, they're going to want some some concessions. They're, they're going to want some things in writing. They're going to want him to publicly pledge to support the committee in making reforms, such as the addition of a whistleblower policy and a code of ethics to the bylaw. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and Keeping Medicare Simple. Okay, 11.36. We'll get a couple of phone calls in here in a second. But first, a reminder, Thursday, if you do not yet have your tickets for the uh, American Greatness Ohio Conservative Forum for this Thursday, get them now. Get them now. Get them now. Get them now. American Greatness Pack. you got to get these tickets uh, to see me, Jack Windsor. Mike Gibbons, Chris Dorr, Scott Wiggin, Jennifer Gross, Greg Lawson, John Morrow, Diane Stover, J.C. Church and Shannon Burns, as well as Stephanie Stock added to this list. All going to be on stage in a forum, a roundtable forum. We'll be answering your questions. Uh, just kind of a, a massive gathering of conservative thought leaders in Northeast Ohio. And it's all going to be hosted by and moderated by uh, Jim Ardacy, the American, Greatman Chair, American Greatness Chairman. It's at Vendor, or excuse me, it's at... Um, uh, Thirsty Cowboy in Medina, the uh, Vendor's Village will open, I believe, at 5.30. The forum will begin at 7 o'clock, so a great chance to network, a great chance to meet a lot of other like-minded people who are trying to work to restore the conservative movement and message in Northeast Ohio, and quite frankly, in Ohio, across the state. We're going to have people coming up from probably Hamilton County, people coming in from Lucas County, people coming in uh, from uh, and up from... Uh, 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 Franklin County. We're going to have people from all over Ohio are going to be a big part of this, and uh, you should be as well. So get your tickets now. If you do not have them, go to American Greatness Pack. You can find them there. I have it linked up also to get your tickets on my webpage at alwayswrite.us. So I'll see you on Thursday at the Thirsty Cowboy in Medina. Uh, let's go to the phones now, and we are going to welcome in um, John in Chardon. Hey, John, you're on the air. Go ahead, sir. Morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, the Dems were successful. Uh, they they were successful uh, at cheating in the election, and I'd bet my house that they're going to do it again in November. So, can what can we do to stop it? Well, first of all, we get a hold of your uh, U.S. House rep and senators and get legislation moving to cut it off at the pass, including eliminating voting machines. Um, Republicans and Democrats hand counting and overseeing one another in, uh, in the voting and eliminating mail-in voting. But, you know, uh, it may not go forward because we don't have a majority at this point. So, Well, in the state of Ohio, we, can... we do. In the state of Ohio, we do. Not okay. nationally, right, not nationally, but in the state of Ohio we do. It would take a, you know, because each state has its own election rules, as you know, and procedures. And, uh, it, yeah. you know, it would take a new secretary of state to try to undo any of those things, including uh, the Dominion voting machines, the Eric uh, voting uh, machines, uh, the um, 
mail-in balloting, all of those things. You know, uh, you know, Frank LaRose is the Secretary of State. He makes the policies, and he, the Ohio Elections Commission, uh, is answerable to that as well. But the bottom line is, um, we're less than, what, what are we, 50, 52, 53 days away, something like that, from uh-huh. uh, the November elections. And to get anything changed at this point in time would be very, very difficult to do. The only thing we can do, John, uh, John I think you said it, is 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 uh volunteer at the polls we need to have as many republican volunteers on hand to watch and make sure there are no shenanigans at least the kind that are visible to make sure there are no shenanigans here in in our elections uh, in this state and hopefully that'll be the the rallying cry around the country uh you know as we look for uh, uh the the balance of power in the in the US Congress to change hopefully they're all doing the same thing now, that doesn't fix the voting machine issues because you can't visibly see somebody hacking into and changing voting re- uh, results and those kinds of things. You can't see them, uh, you know, committing the fraud that is committed via mail-in balloting. So those things are still going to be problems. There's no question about it. But the one thing we can do, at least when it comes to the counting, at least when it comes to the procedures being followed at the uh, precincts uh, on, on Election Day, uh, is, yeah. is get as many as many watchers as we can out there. Well... And by the grace of God, if we can prevail in this November election, then we can pass pass legislation. You know. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's hope that's yeah. the case. John, thank you, my friend. Yeah. I appreciate it. Good to hear from you. We're going out to Nebraska now, where Scott Frost no longer has a job. Dan in Nebraska joining us here in Cleveland on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. Hey, Dan, how are you? I am doing okay. Are you a are you a Husker I, fan? Well, I live in Nebraska. Okay. Well, so that's a given then. I just wanted to ask what you. I just wanted to ask. They fired their. They fired their former legendary quarterback who uh, didn't quite work out as a coach. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're firing everybody. <laughs> but but anyway, we're still. You know, we still enthusiastically pretend like they're a great team. So. Well, anyway, you know what? If that's all, if that's all you've got, listen, listen. I know you didn't call to talk about football, but I oh, feel right. for I feel for people in states like Nebraska, just diehard football fans. But there's no NFL team there. Literally, the Huskers are your 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 college and your NFL team. They are what football fans live and die with. And to see the program fall off the way that it has, that's got to be rough on you guys. I feel for you. I really do. Yeah, fortunately, I guess, or unfortunately, there's enough money to make it look like we sell out every <laughs> time there's a game at home. So, gotcha. uh, But speaking of money, that's mm-hmm. what I kind of called about was, I think there's plenty of money. Uh, in your conversation with Peter Kershaw this more, earlier uh, just got me so riled up. I've managed to work hard enough to get most of that down to uh, civil language, but... Um, I think what we need to do is find the right people, because I don't, otherwise I'd do it, but I'd be glad to fund somebody that's got the uh, means uh, in terms of skills. I do understand your point. I do understand your passion, and I share it, and I'll say this, and thank you for the call from Nebraska, Dan. Um, You're 100% right. I would support it, and I bet millions of people would support such a legal fund to protect and defend people who have been falsely accused of racism. Harvard Law Professor Noah Feldman once said, uh, no, I'm sorry, not not, 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 uh, not Feldman, I'm sorry. I'm, I've got two quotes here that I wanted to share with you, and I don't know if I can get them out in time. Uh, but uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald once said that accusations of racism 
or about the worst thing that you can call somebody. Now, this is going back a ways when you're talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald. But when you accuse somebody of racism falsely, there's no coming back from that. Thanks, everyone. See you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.